Cyber warfare hots up. Britain says the Russians are trying to make the whole world unstable. British troops join in Japanese war games for the first time. Why the Defence Secretary is sending the Royal Marines back out into the snow. It is vital uh, that they have the resource and they have the equipment to do their job. And the human faces behind RAF drone warfare. The UK has more evidence to back its belief that Russia is running a major cyber attack on key allied installations. Six specific attacks have been identified as being carried out by hackers working for Russian military intelligence, the GU, during the past 12 months. Also, Dutch officials said that four Russians have been expelled from the Netherlands for trying to hack into the Organisation for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. This is where part of the Novichok analysis is taking place. Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt says this is an international operation by Russian hackers. If anyone had any questions in their mind about Russian military involvement in the Salisbury attacks, this will put to rest those doubts because here you have evidence of the Russian military launching a cyber attack on the very organisation, the international organisation in the Netherlands set up to investigate those Novichok attacks. And why would you do that? if you weren't the guilty party. Uh, the reality is that this is part of a pattern of cyber attacks in the UK, the US, Malaysia, Switzerland, now the Netherlands. And the Russian government needs to know that if they flout international law in this way, there will be consequences, uh, they will be exposed, and people will see uh, the Russian government for what they are, which is uh, an organisation that is trying to fester instability throughout the world, and that is totally unacceptable. Well, I'm joined by Paul Rogers, Professor of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford, as well as BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. But first, let's talk to Sky's defence correspondent, Alistair Bunkle, who is at the press conference in The Hague, where the details of the attempted attack on the OPCW were announced. Alistair, hello. Lots of detail. Can you talk us through it? Yeah, loads of detail. I'll try and sum it up quite uh, briefly and succinctly. But essentially, four GRU officers came to the Netherlands on the 10th of April, flew in from Moscow, CCTV placing them at Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam, met by a diplomat from the Russian embassy here. Over the next three days, they were tracked. Uh, Russian intelligence has pictures of their hire car and the hire car agreement. Images of their passports have been made public. Two of those passports have exactly the same passport number uh, except for the last digit, which is one digit apart. They were then busted uh, outside the OPCW. They parked their car in the Marriott Hotel, which is next door to the OPCW, and Dutch security found in the boot of their car equipment used to hack into the Wi-Fi of the OPCW and an antennae that was hidden under a coat that was pointing directly at the OPCW. And then subsequent investigations, they found a taxi receipt, for example, that was on one of the men that showed that he'd got a taxi from the headquarters of the GRU in Moscow to one of the major airports in Moscow on the 10th of April, the same day that they flew to Amsterdam. The laptop data as well showed that one of the laptops had been logged in close to the World uh, Anti-Doping Agency in Lausanne in Switzerland, and had also been logged in in Kuala Lumpur, close to where 
the Malaysian government was carrying out an investigation into MH17. Uh, both of those events have been linked to Russia. So an awful lot of evidence, a load of intelligence that I can't remember so much being put forward in my career, intelligence that would normally stay secret, but this is the new tactic. Mm. Put it out in the open and expose what they're up to. Put it out in the open, Alistair, but these are events that happened in April. Why is it coming out today? Since April and since the Novichok um, event in Salisbury, there's been an awful lot of work going on behind the scenes, uh, both in the UK, in the United States, partner agencies across Europe, NATO as well. And they've been gathering that evidence in order to try and bring indictments against anyone that they feel uh, should be on trial. And we will have, if it hasn't happened already, I think within the next couple of minutes, indictments from the United States uh, for, we suspect, these four men to try and bring them to trial. Now, that probably will never happen, but you also have to remember intelligence agencies like MI6 don't just put intelligence out there without an awful lot of thought, uh, a bit of angst and hand-wringing, to be honest. And they've decided now, the Western powers, that the tactic is to put into public when they can and where they can uh, exposure of GRU tactics in order to shine a light on it, in order to make it embarrassing or make it awkward for the Russian government. Mm. Paul Rogers from the University of Bradford, what do you make of it all? Well, it's certainly part of, I think, a, a programme uh, within NATO to try and embarrass the Russians. Uh, interestingly, we've also had quite important meetings in uh, Brussels, NATO meetings over the last two days. The US Sec Defence Secretary Jim Mattis has been there. And AP is reporting that the Pentagon is making available to NATO allies both defensive and offensive cyber operations and its own capabilities, although the United States will maintain control over its own personnel and capabilities. So this is an sense it is a, a particular kind of, if you like, information warfare. I think the West wants to embarrass Russia by revealing what Russia is known to be doing. It won't actually say what it is doing, although we do have some evidence of that. And both sides are very much involved in this. There are, I think, specific issues, though. Beyond this sort of tit-for-tat, there is genuine, and in my view, right concern about the Russian activities on the CW side, uh, both in terms of Novichok and Salisbury, and probably other incidents as well. Because quite apart from anything else, that is eroding the Chemical Weapons Convention, which is a very valuable international treaty. And in some ways, I think the focus probably needs to be on that in particular. Christopher Lee, do you agree with Mr Hunt's idea that the Russians are trying to cause instability? I think they are trying to cause instability, but there's also something else you have to remember, is who is actually causing instability and in what form. But just one, one small point, which becomes very important um, as the day goes on. <clears throat> Excuse me. We talk about the four guys, the, the Russians who were taken out of uh, the Netherlands, yes, in April. MI6 says one of them was operating and trying uh, and, and organizing the downing of uh, the airliner over the Ukraine when, in which 300 people were killed. They're linking that and saying we have the evidence, we have the photographs, we have the, the numbers and the correspondence. We can match it up when in no doubt whatsoever. Now that begins really the paragraph of Mr uh, Hunt's thinking that this is this spreads. This is not something which you have just to knock off 
perhaps a, a former a GU officer because you are getting your own back. Mm. Alistair Bunkle, in terms of uh, the way this has been handled, this press conference, how much choreographing was there of the journalists who've been involved? Were you very thoroughly briefed before you arrived? Does that indicate how seriously it's being taken? Um, it's very well choreographed. It wasn't just events here. There was due to be, it slightly changed, there was due to be a briefing of uh, political lobby correspondents in London at the same time. That was then cancelled, and this press conference, well, media briefing that was going to be embargoed for an hour, then was uh, broadcast live, I'm told, under the instructions of the Dutch Prime Minister. The uh, Dutch Defence Minister, who came from that NATO meeting in Brussels here, briefed the NATO Secretary General last night. Obviously, the British knew about it, the Americans knew about it, but no other NATO countries were made aware of it. Uh, beforehand. Um, you've got, with America waking up, uh, those indictments will be coming out today as well. So that's coordinated. And there is a um, briefing with uh, some of my colleagues back in Westminster with the Deputy National Security Advisor going on as well. So very coordinated. Uh, in terms of what I knew about it, um, well, all I would say is that, you know, I was in the Hague ready for the media briefing to start and you know we we were aware that um you know this would be quite a big day in terms of revelations um it, it is isn't it um um one of the biggest operations we've seen like this by the british uh including the americans i suppose on the detail against russian intelligence and in particular against uh the gu um, and what they are able to do without the say-so, direct say-so perhaps of Mr. Putin. And also there's another side of this. When we talk about cyber intelligence and cyber attacks and hacking, etc., the GRU believe that that cyber hack is the first days of the transition to war. And what we are seeing partly here and have seen over the past two years now is the Russians in the form of the GU and also Sikons Intelligence preparing for the first days of war. They're exercising four of the targets that the uh, GRU supposedly hit were targets in Russia itself to see what the reaction would be and the counter-reaction might be. This is a much bigger thing than just four guys making an absolute fool of themselves because they didn't do it properly. Sitting in a, in a car outside of the chemical uh, warfare centre in, in, in The Hague. Mm. Much bigger. Taking into account what Chris has just said, Professor Paul Rogers, where do you see we'll be in perhaps five years' time? I think this is going to be a feature of um, international bad relations, so to speak, and I think it's going to mount. There's another aspect of this which I think is significant. As Christopher just said, this operation in The Hague was frankly botched, and in a sense the operation against the Skripals was also botched in that they survived. The two people who did it were identified. One poor woman was killed, of course. The two women, who, the two men who did it were identified. Uh, their false names were basically uncovered and all the rest. So the GRU itself is actually uh, suffering a fair bit of embarrassment. And the word is that other branches of the Russian intelligence and security agencies are almost laughing at them. Now, that basically is an internal thing, mm. and it doesn't detract from this wider issue uh, of the rise of this whole area. It's one that the United States in particular is putting a huge amount of money into, both on the defensive and, as I said, on the offensive side as well. OK, we'll have to leave it there for the moment. Professor Paul Rogers, thank you for your time. Alistair Bunkle, thank you for your time too. Six.
Rep with Kate Still to come, the Royal Marines are heading north, just like old times, and Drone Wars, just another RAF day job, or is it? British troops have made history this week, exercising on Japanese soil for the very first time. 50 UK soldiers from the Honourable Artillery Company are still taking part in Exercise Vigilant Isles, alongside 160 from Japan's ground self-defence forces. The aim of the two-week exercise is to strengthen defence and security ties between the two nations. Our reporter, Sean Grezchek, was there and spoke to Commander Field Army Lieutenant General Patrick Sanders. It's a big deal for both countries. Um, It's important to uh, Japanese security. It's important to Britain's role uh, as a global power uh, and our future uh, as we change our relationship with Europe. Um, This matters. Well, Sean also spoke to the British ambassador to Japan, Paul Madden. How significant a moment is this for both the UK military and the Japanese military? It's significant for two reasons. The first one is that it's a very concrete manifestation of the closer enhanced security relationship that we have with Japan following the Prime Minister's visit to Tokyo last year when she and Japanese Prime Minister Abe set out a a new vision for our relationship. And secondly, I think it's important because it's the first time anyone other than the the Americans has been doing land-based exercises with the Japanese on Japanese soil. And over the last two or three years, we've progressively seen more security engagement. Uh, Two years ago, uh, we had some typhoon fighters doing joint exercises here. Um, In the course of this year, we will have had three ships visits, and now we've got the the first land-based exercises. So I think it's all part of a pattern of much closer engagement with a a friend and partner. How challenging has it been on on both sides? Because, of course, even though it was more than 70 years ago, the shadow of World War II is still there, isn't it? No, I don't think so, actually. I'm not sure that very much in the in people's consciousness nowadays. When I was first posted in Japan about 30 years ago, obviously there were many more people alive who had lived through the, the war generation. I remember a number of uh, former Far East prisoners of war coming through on reconciliation visits and so on. But I think now, it's 70 years ago, I think Japan has been a country that we've had friendly relationships with for decades. It's a country that shares many of our values. So I'm not sure it's so much of an overhang Now, obviously, of course, everyone remembers the sacrifices that were made by by soldiers and civilian populations at the time, but I wouldn't say it really overshadows the relationship. Do you think it will be difficult for for anyone back in in the UK with with connections to to World War War II? Well, I think it may may be a factor for individuals who've got particular family connections, but I think most people I know, and my parents are of that generation, I think they they want to look forward and whilst respecting past sacrifices by individuals, I think most of them like to think they're living in a world where the children and grandchildren of the people who paid those sacrifices are living together in in harmony. How significant a moment will it be? You say it is history, it has never happened before. What does this mean for both countries? Well, I think for uh, Japan, it's uh, very welcome to have countries like Britain doing more with it because it's a time of uncertainty in in the region and so Japan is looking to have closer relationships with those countries which share its values and they may be uh, countries in its immediate neighbourhood like Australia and India or it may be countries who are global players like the United Kingdom. 
And from our side, I think it's a manifestation of the fact that post-Brexit, you're going to see a global Britain being able to engage a little bit more uh, with the world beyond Europe. We've perhaps been focused um, more narrowly on Europe over recent decades. Um, and now I think we're going to be looking uh, even more extensively at this part of the world. And after all, this is the part of the world that's seeing most economic growth, so it's important that we're engaging with it. There's a whole melting pot of issues in this region, the threat from North Korea, uh, a concern last year when missiles were fired into Japanese waters. So what's the mood like here in Japan? The most significant concern in recent time has obviously been North Korea, which um, has been doing... Uh, nuclear testing, it's been doing missile testing. Um, for some years it had been doing test flights of missiles over Japanese um, maritime airspace. Last year there were actually um, um, missiles going over Japanese land territory, which is obviously very concerning. So um, Japan attaches a lot of importance to um, measures to try to draw North Korea back into a process leading towards denuclearization. And so it sees, as do we, the importance of enforcing the UN sanctions. And indeed, that was one of the things that HMS Albion was doing when it was here. It was working with the Japanese on sanctions enforcement. The Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe is pushing for a change to the Japanese constitution. Do you think it's about time um, that the, the military in Japan was recognised and that constitution was changed? So it's not for us to comment on the internal politics of, of the Japanese constitution any more than you'd expect the Japanese ambassador in London to talk about um, UK domestic laws. But Prime Minister Abe, who's just been re-elected last week as the uh, leader of his party, which means he'll be prime minister for another three years or so, uh, he has now two-thirds majorities in both the upper and lower houses, so he's in a position politically to be able to uh, deliver on some of his ambitions, although it also would require a referendum of the Japanese public. I think Prime Minister Abe wants to uh, restore Japan to what he would see as a, a more normal nation in its ability to operate a, a security system to, to defend itself um, and therefore to, to amend the constitution which was passed in 1948 during the US occupation. I think in terms of Japanese public opinion, the polls suggest that he's still got some way to go to get the public behind him on this. But if there's a, a major political debate, who knows how that debate will go. But that's for, that's for Prime Minister Abe, and it's not really something that Britain would take a view on. Moving forward, uh, what will the future look like uh, in terms of the defence relationship with the UK and Japan? Well, I think we're going to continue to get closer to Japan in terms of... Um, exchanging ideas, working together in all sorts of international spheres, international bodies like the UN and so on. I expect to see an overall general strengthening of the relationship. That was the British ambassador to Japan, Paul Madden. The Defence Secretary has reaffirmed the Conservative Party's election pledge not to make any job cuts in the armed forces. It's after he told the party's conference he'd protect the amphibious assault ships HMS Bulwark and HMS Albion after reports they could be retired to save money. He also announced an uplift in Royal Marines' Arctic training and a small continued presence in Germany after drawdown. But a defence review called the Modernising Defence Programme is still underway. Here he is speaking to James Hurst. 
What we're saying is that actually uh, for Royal Marines to be effective they need to have amphibious assault ships. For Royal Marines to do the job that we ask them to do they need to have the training and support and that's what we're giving them. Uh, the Royal Marines have played such a pivotal and important part of our armed forces. Uh, it is vital uh, that they have the resource and they have the equipment to do their job. The rest of the armed forces are going to be looking and going oh, are we going to get the cuts now instead? What we're looking at as part of a whole modernising defence programme is actually what are the threats, what are the capabilities that we need and what are the resources we need to deliver that. And it's not about actually one part of the armed forces winning or one part of the armed forces losing. It's about trying to make sure all parts of the armed forces have what they need. But we know you have to save billions, so either there have to be cuts or the Chancellor has to come up with more money. Which is it? Yeah. Well, as I've touched upon, the reason for modernising defence programme, instead of having a programme that is imposed on us by the Cabinet Office or uh, some other such organisation is as defence look at what we need. And yes, we want to look at doing things differently. We want to use new technologies. We want to look at new ways of actually being able to get the right equipment and uh, do de defence procurement so much better. So yes, we are asking all those questions, but it is about having that discussion of the financial and capability needs that we need going in the future. There was a manifesto commitment to protect jobs, does that stand? Yes. And when will the answers of the full MDP come? Well, what we're hoping to do is make sure we have a full MDP uh, before Christmas and that's what we're working towards. How much is there left to decide and announce? Because it was quite a comprehensive set of announcements yesterday. Uh, oh, there's, uh, uh, believe me, there's uh, plenty of work that's been done and plenty more to announce. That was the Defence Secretary Gavin Williamson talking to James Hurst. The British run attack drones mainly into the Middle East. There's a whole operation running from the Air Force Base Creech in Nevada as well as RAF Waddington in Lincolnshire. It's part of the international role of the Royal Air Force today, but it carries with it more than military justification. What is the moral justification for using drones fired thousands of miles away and what does it do to the men and women who have their fingers on the remote trigger? The man who probably knows more than this about the most is Dr Peter Lee, former RAF chaplain and now lecturer in ethics and warfare at the University of Portsmouth and the author of Reaper Force Inside Britain's Drone Wars. Good to speak to you today, Dr Lee. The drone's effectively the first pilotless attack aircraft. Does this give us a moral dimension as well as a military one? I think it introduces a, a few dimensions, the first of which is linked to moral, and that is it's not actually pilotless. It's just that the pilot is sitting thousands of miles away controlling via satellite link-up. So it's very much uh, human-piloted, the weapons are human-controlled, and there's a mission intelligence coordinator in every crew. And in terms of the, the moral dimension that, that, this, that this asks, it gives, I think, the, the Reaper the claim to be the most ethical or moral means of delivering air power yet devised. And how much did the RAF open up to you on this? Completely. I, I was almost astounded. Anyone who, who reads a book at the beginning, the first couple of chapters, is me literally driving out to Creech Air Force Base into the morning briefing and then out into the ground control station with a crew for operations over Iraq and Syria. And the crew members themselves have 
have been incredibly um, open and forthright about their their experiences, uh, some of which are, are highly emotional, some of which are of which of course are very proud, um, others which are very dramatic. Uh, the chapter where we have a, a, a pregnant Reaper weapon operator killing Taliban when she's mm. three to four months pregnant. It asks all kinds of new questions, and people were very open about their experiences. Yeah, I'm just wondering if you could read a bit from the book because it shows what we don't usually hear about a drone attack. It's the description of an attack against a vehicle. The pilot is a man called Jamie, and they've hit one vehicle and are just going in for a second attack using the guided bomb unit. Let me read a few paragraphs. A slight movement through the haze in the picture caught Jamie's attention, and he leaned in slightly towards his screen, his eyes narrowing. He could just make out a man. He judged it to be a man from his height relative to the second truck. He was pulling something out of the flames at the back of the first truck and tossing it to the side. It looked like he was throwing bags. If the man was rescuing unexploded homemade explosive from a burning truck, he must be mad. In the ground control station, the process for the second strike was coming to a head. As the pilot was about to ask, is everyone content? Just before the 3-2-1 countdown to weapon release, the images clarify further. Jamie's stomach lurches. Next to the man is a person half his size. Is this, is this a child? For a split second he doubts what he's seeing. The picture on the screen does not match the picture he expects to see from the intelligence they've been given. What if he's wrong? Don't panic. But he could see what he could see, even if it didn't make sense. Abort, abort! He interrupted the pilot who was focused on the final few seconds of the weapon release while the sensor operator was tense, waiting to guide the next bomb. What's the problem, asked the pilot, his grip on the trigger snapping loose at the same time. The release process stopped instantly, the pre-strike tension suddenly broken. Dr Lee, thank you for that. I mean, you joined those pilots, didn't you, as they were carrying out live strikes. What was it like for you? It was... I would say gut-wrenching is the is the correct word. I, I did on my second day, I was doing eight, ten-hour shifts with the crews on my second day within an hour and a half. I was mic'd in, listening, arm's length from the crew, and all I could hear was the the process of authorization to strike these two jihadists who were, who were on a motorbike in front of me on the screen. And I've been a chaplain, I've been around death, but all I could think of was this this these two are going to die and then one of them got off the bike and then approval continued then I heard three two one and I found I was holding my breath and the adrenaline was incredible same for the crew and the the sensor operator who who guided the weapon into hitting this this uh, Syrian jihadist on on the motorbike takes about half a minute in flight and it just at the end as it as it hit the bike and exploded he kind of exhales hugely as as his heart had been pounding so it's really intensive really uh, immersive for the crews involved well listening to this is christopher lee our defense analyst christopher i'm wondering i mean a lot is written in the papers and in the and you see in the media about the use of drone warfare how do you much do you think we really understand about it i think we understand far more and i think quite frankly um uh, because of Fidley's book, we'll understand even more important elements. For example, that you get in warfare, any form of warfare, an element of what was called common humanity. Um, this is, starts in the Spanish Civil War with George Orwell, for example. So it's that long ago. What, it, what we see from this book and what Fidley has brought out 
is the fact that you don't have that element of common humanity anymore. And warfare, at a time where we're increasingly technological, uh, demands that you do have that understanding of common humanity. You know, you have a moral issue which actually should be there all the time, but quite clearly isn't. Yeah, as you mentioned, because we've, at the top of the programme today, we're talking about cyber attacks. Peter Lee, how do you think you keep that common humanity? Well, I think what we've just heard is, is the common understanding of much of technological warfare, but the Reaper operations that are exactly the opposite. They are now more immersed in warfare because what they see visually is about 100 yards away. They, they see the shocking results of a strike they've made. They watch children put bits of their father's dead body in a wheelbarrow for burial. They've watched that man playing football with his kids go out with his neighbours. The Reaper squadrons are more immersed in the lives of the people that they kill than conventional aircraft and, and warriors have been for generations and possibly centuries. So in terms of that common humanity, they they see more of the humanity of the people they kill than artillery, than other conventional jets, than any other means of delivering firepower in the British or any other military. So the, the moral aspect is really important, but, but what the Reaper does, it's so precise that it enables them to make these very difficult decisions, protect civilians and hit the targets they're meant to hit with much greater accuracy than before. Dr. Peter Lee, good to speak to you. And your book's out now, isn't it? It's out today, thank you. Yes, Reaper Force. OK, thank you very much for your time today. I'm afraid that's all we have time for this week. Don't forget, you can get in touch on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And while you're online, you can sign up for the podcast. Just search for SITREP in all the usual podcast places. I'm Kate Jabo. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Have a good week. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.